Welcome to the Growing Downward podcast, brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. We're pleased to present Nick Thompson's sermon series on humility that was the impetus for his book, Growing Downward, a work that centers on the necessity of true humility in Christian life. Thanks for listening, and be sure to get a copy of Growing Downward at heritagebooks.org, and also make sure to visit growingdownward.com where you will find information, including interviews, study guides, and more. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be continuing our sermon series on humility this morning. And we're going to be looking more narrowly this morning at verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 3, this great gospel promise. Uh, but I want to begin reading in verse 8. And as you'll recall, we, we looked at the earlier part of Genesis 3 a few weeks ago. Uh, this is the account of the fall of mankind into sin. So Adam and Eve have just eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've realized that their nakedness, they're naked and exposed before God. And, uh, and they've sought to cover themselves with fig leaves. And now we pick up in verse 8 of Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpents, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the fields. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden 
to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it now. Lord, we have just read of this most sobering scene. We have read of our sin and fall in Adam and of your coming, your coming in judgments. Lord, we pray that as we would look at this passage this morning, that you would open our minds to understand it, that you would open our hearts to receive Christ as he is set forth so wonderfully in it. Give us eyes to see him. Show us Jesus, Lord. Exalt him in our midst this morning. Cause us to revel in his grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A proud Calvinist. I wonder if you've ever met one before. He thinks he's really something. He looks down upon those who are less knowledgeable than him, less theologically astute. He speaks disdainfully of those who reject the sovereignty of God's grace. He wants you and everyone else to be really impressed with his library and all the books that he's read. He's always embroiled in theological controversy. He thinks he's really great because he's reformed. But the truth of the matter is he's not reformed at all. His pride actually reveals that the the truths that he claims to believe and to defend have not actually taken root in his heart. And that is because Reformed theology, just because it is biblical theology, promotes humility. It promotes and produces humility in those who truly, really know it. We've been talking a lot about humility in the past couple of months, and we've defined it as the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. It's the disposition of soul that's produced when we see ourselves in the light of God's glory. And, and we've seen that when we see ourselves before God, there's, there's really two things about ourselves that become very clear. And that is that we are creatures and that we are corrupt. We've been looking at what it means for us to have an all-controlling sense of our creatureliness and our corruption over the past number of weeks. And now I want to turn to drawing out some of the implications of that. What are some of the implications of us being radically corrupt creatures? Here's one of them. You and I cannot save ourselves. Because of our sin, we have alienated ourselves from our Creator. We have been cut off 
from loving fellowship with him. And if we are to be reconciled with God, there are, there are two things that we need. Two things if we are to be brought back into fellowship with our creator. Negatively, we need to have our sins removed from us. And positively, we need to possess perfect righteousness. And here is the humbling truth. The humbling truth is that as finite creatures, we have no ability to pay the infinite debt of our sin. As finite creatures, we cannot pay the debt that our sin deserves. And as corrupt sinners, we we have no ability to perform even a single righteous deed. Corrupt creatures like us can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. If we would be saved, God himself must do it. This is what was called in the Reformation, sola gratia. It's a Latin phrase that means grace alone. Our forefathers understood that if corrupt creatures were to be saved, it would be by God's grace alone. Grace is a humbling reality. Grace implies that we don't deserve it. It implies that we can do nothing to earn it. It implies that we are absolutely helpless and needy. And the more that we are growing downward in humility and upward in the fear of God, the more we will see how absolutely desperately we need the grace of God in the gospel. We return this morning to Genesis to see that. Adam and Eve have risen up in autonomous revolt against God. They have defied their creator. They have sided with Satan, and they deserve death for it. They had tried in their pride to cover over their sin, and they had hid from God's presence, and they had resorted to blame shifting. The serpent, he's the one who made me do it, the one you gave me, God. It was the woman's fault. The picture here is devastating. And God could have left it that way. He could have come with his sword of judgment and struck our first parents dead on the spot. That's what they deserved. That's what they should have gotten if they would have gotten justice. But here's the amazing thing. God comes to our first parents with the gospel. He comes to our first parents in grace. And notice first here that a God in this passage is the one who alone initiates salvation. He alone initiates it. His initiative is up front and center in this story. Adam and Eve have rejected God. They're hiding from God. They've done nothing to uh, make a a way for, for them to approach God. They recognize they can't stand before him. They recognize they deserve death. 
And that's why they're hiding here. That's why they've made coverings. But notice that it's God who is pursuing them. You see that in verse 9. God pursues them, calling out to the man, where are you? And then in verses 11 through 13, God pierces their hearts with a series of questions intended to bring about conviction of sin. And then beginning in verse 14, God declares the first gospel promise. So we see here that the pursuing, the piercing, the promising, all of it, all of it is from God. And the divine initiative here becomes even more clear when we look at the nature of this promise that God makes. Contrary to our expectation, this gospel promise comes in the form of a curse. It's actually a threefold curse. If we were to look in great detail at verses 14 through 19, we would see that God first curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15, then the woman in verse 16, and then the man in verses 17 through 19. God is the one who is doing all of the cursing here. God is the one who is executing judgments upon the pride of the serpents and the man and the woman. But our attention this morning will be specifically on the curse of the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Notice that God promises here the serpent's defeat. The serpent's defeat. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Remember, Satan, kids, is an angelic being. Satan is not actually a snake. He's an angelic being that took on the form of a snake to tempt our first parents. He used this animal as a vehicle to destroy humanity. And because uh, this animal was a tool in the devil's hands, it would be cursed above all else. God's high curse here, he says, above all, you'll be cursed above all, results in the serpent's low position. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, we don't know if serpents originally walked erect with legs and feet. There's, there's debates about whether that is so or not. We're, we're not told here in the scriptures, but... Uh, what is clear is that from this point forward, this animal is subjected to crawl in the dirt. And this is, of course, a symbolic representation of God's curse upon Satan himself. This angelic being had risen up in prideful defiance of God. He had become infatuated with himself and couldn't stand the idea of living in worshipful submission to his creator. And now because of his self-exaltation, God is bringing him low. He's bringing him down. He will now eat the dust 
And this is actually a picture of military defeat. You see this throughout different places in the scriptures. For example, in Micah 7.17, this, this is a picture of God's enemies licking the dust as they are being defeated. God will see to it that his arch enemy is subdued and ultimately destroyed. And so God promises the serpent's defeat. But he also promises the woman's deliverance. Look at verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Take careful note of the I there. God is the one doing this. This is God's initiative, not the woman's. And what is God doing? He's placing enmity between Satan and the woman. The word enmity is emphasized in the original. It's up front. God is, God is wanting to make it very clear. Enmity, hostility, bitter, bloody warfare. Now, war is not a pleasant reality. Some of you here have fought in wars. They're not things that we would ordinarily desire. They are bloody events that require great sacrifice, pain, trauma, loss. If World War III were to break out today, we would not break out into praise. So, why is it good news that God is here declaring war? Why is it good news that God is promising enmity? I said that that God is coming to our first parents here with the gospel. He's coming in grace, but all we're reading of is hostility, enmity, warfare. How is that good news? We need to remember what has happened here. We need to remember what Eve has done in her sin. Eve has sided with Satan. Adam has sided with the serpent. They have espoused his autonomous arrogance. They have come to possess the same haughty disposition and the same idolatrous self-perception that he had. They had made friendship with the devil. They had become his allies. That's what happened in the fall. And what God is doing here is he is coming to our first parents and he is saying, no, no, it will not be so. I will not allow it to continue any longer. Eve has sided with you, Satan. But in my sovereign grace, I am going to win her back for myself. She is mine. That's what God is saying here. Do you see that? This is pure grace. Eve had defied her creator. But her creator is coming after her now as redeemer. Coming after her to free her from her servitude to Satan. And not only will he do this for Eve, but he'll do this for her children. 
You see that in verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. The enmity is between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And the question we need to ask is, what is meant by offspring here? It clearly does not refer to physical offspring, because Satan is an angel who has no ability to procreate. He can't have physical offspring. So what is God talking about here? What is God promising? Who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to spiritual offspring. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, all of their descendants will be born in sin. They will be born enslaved to Satan and disposed to his arrogant lives. But God, in his rich grace, will see to it that some, some from Eve's offspring, will be delivered from Satan and brought into his family. Spiritually speaking, they will no longer be children of the devil, but they will be children of God. And we see this unfolding in the next chapter. Chapter 4 of Genesis, you have Cain and Abel. Now, if you were to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, you would find that Cain was of the evil one. He was a child of the devil. That's what John tells us there. And we learn from Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel was righteous before God. He was a man of faith. And even here in chapter 4 of Genesis, we see bloody warfare. We see death. We see two opposing offsprings fighting against one another. And all of redemptive history is the unfolding of this promise. This promise of enmity between two seeds. The one following Satan and the other following God. And what we must see this morning, what we need to see, is that this is entirely of God's gracious initiative. He alone has done this. If he did not come and say, I, I, I will put enmity between you and the serpents. If he had not done that, then we would all be children of the devil. We would all be under his wrath. This is a humbling truth. When we did not seek God, God sought us. When we did not love God, God loved us. When we violated God's law, God came to us with gospel promise. We are entirely dependent upon the grace of God. And this becomes even more evident as God's promise continues to unfold. You see that God alone initiates our salvation, but second, he alone accomplishes our salvation. How is it that this enmity will be brought about? How is it that children of wrath will be brought back to himself? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 15. 
Here God zeroes in on the conflicts that will occur between Satan and a particular child of Eve. Speaking to the devil, God says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The he and the you that are engaged here in this fight are are both in the singular. This is a warfare unfolding between the serpent and an individual child of Eve. And don't forget, God is the one bringing this about. He's the one doing this. This son of Eve will bruise or strike the serpent's head. And in the process, his foot will be bruised or struck. In other words, both parties will suffer in this conflict, as it oftentimes is in war. Both sides suffer, and only one comes out victorious. And what we see here is that the blow inflicted by Eve's descendants will be deadly. It will result in the serpent's head being crushed. To the contrary, the blow inflicted by Satan will not be fatal. It will result merely in the bruising of the foot. So so the picture here is of a son of Eve stomping on the, the head of the serpent and in the process fracturing his foot. Now who is this son of Eve? Who is this one who will crush the serpent's head? Who is this one who would accomplish salvation from sin and Satan? Well, it's Jesus Christ. This is why Luke begins his gospel account with a genealogy. Ever wonder why those genealogies are there? There's a reason for it. Luke is wanting to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He's wanting to trace Jesus' lineage all the way back, back, back. Not to David, not to Abraham ultimately, but to Adam, to Adam. He wants us to see that Jesus is a son of Adam. He's the offspring of the woman. And what do we find in Luke's gospel is just after this genealogy in Luke 4, Jesus, by the Spirit, is thrust into the wilderness to do what? To battle with the serpents. That battle reaching its climax at the cross. Jesus defeated the serpents through suffering. He would crush the serpent's head. But his heel would be bruised in the process. He would not come out unscathed. He would not come out of this battle, this war, without scars. He died, we're told in Hebrews 2.14, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Adam and Eve, now fallen, were powerless absolutely powerless to defeat the devil. And we too have no ability to destroy him. We have no ability to deliver ourselves from him or from the death that our sin deserves. 
But here God is not only promising to take the initiative in saving us, but he's actually promising to accomplish our salvation. From beginning to end, God is doing it all. And this gospel promise is graphically pictured for our first parents here. It's pictured in the clothing that God provides. Remember, they had tried to cover their shame and their guilt with fig leaves. They were legalists. They thought that they could clean themselves up, that they could uh, make themselves okay before this holy God. But their attempts were entirely futile. And so here they are laid bare before their holy creator. And we read these wonderful, amazing words in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Kids, do you know what's happening here? This is the first animal sacrifice that has ever happened in the history of the world. You cannot get garments of skins, clothing made out of skins, without first slaughtering and skinning an animal. Animals are here sacrificed. Their blood is shed in order to clothe, in order to cover Adam and Eve. And guess what? God is the one who does it. God is the one who sacrifices the first animal for sin. Imagine what this this must have been like for Adam and Eve. Think about what God had warned them of. The prohibition back in Genesis chapter 2. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you will die. Death. Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They've eaten of the fruits that God had forbidden. And, And what did they expect? They expected death. And now here is their creator. And the sword of his judgment is raised up in the air. But instead of that sword falling upon our first parents, it falls upon an animal that God had provided. It falls upon another, a substitute that God had made. And the blood of this animal is spilled right before their eyes. And God takes the skins of this animal. And he clothes our parents, this substitute that was killed for them, that took the death their sins deserve, is now the means by which they are clothed, by which their shame and their guilt and their nakedness is covered. Think of how amazing this must have been to them, how breathtakingly awesome it must have been. To experience the grace of God in this way. As mere creatures, we have no ability to pay the infinite debt that our sin deserves. 
But here's what God does in the gospel. He provides a substitute for us. A substitute of infinite value. A substitute who is divine to pay our debts. As corrupt sinners, we we cannot do a single righteous deed. And so God provides a substitute for us who renders perfect obedience, being human. And through this one, through the God-man, Jesus Christ, our nakedness can be clothed. Through this one, we can be delivered from Satan's bondage. Through this one, the serpent's head can be crushed. It's all because of God's gracious provision in Jesus Christ. It's all because of this redemption, which he has accomplished. It's because Jesus willingly took to himself our nature, becoming a son of Eve and subjecting himself to the death that you and I deserve. That is what is being pictured in this animal sacrifice. And that is what is being promised in the curse upon the serpents. As sinners, as sinners, that is what we need. And God wastes no time in providing it. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, would be banished from the garden. They would be forbidden from eating of the tree of life. That tree, remember, symbolized the eternal life, the eternal fellowship with God that God had created us for. And now they have been separated from that tree, and that tree is being guarded by cherubim, by great, powerful warrior angels, and by a flaming sword. But God here promises our parents that there is one who is coming. One who is coming who will come under that sword of judgment. One coming whose blood will be spilt. And through the bruising of his messianic heel, he will deliver a spiritual people from satanic death to eternal life. Are you one of those people? Are you a spiritual descendant of Eve? Have you come to see yourself as a radically corrupt creature? Have you come to see that you can do nothing to pay the infinite debt of your sin? That you cannot perform a single good thing by which to merit right standing before God? Embracing those truths requires humility. But true humility will not stop there. It will not wallow in the mud and in the mire. It will cast itself in utter desperation upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It will say, I cannot save myself. Left to myself, I am damned. I'm lost. I'm done. But God in his rich grace has initiated and accomplished 
salvation for sinners like me. He has done it all. And I will not dare to reject that gift. Grace, grace, it is all of grace. That's what humility says. You see why a proud Calvinist is a contradiction of terms. You see why a proud Christian is a contradiction of terms. The gospel of God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ humbles us in the dust. If we truly believe this, if we truly believe that salvation is by grace alone, it leaves no room for human boasting. Let me close with an illustration. A number of years ago, I was on vacation with my family and my younger brother, Max, he's nine years younger than me. He was very young at this point. We were at the beach and this day the waves were exceptionally strong and exceptionally high and we were having a blast just getting pounded by the wave, wave after wave after wave. Uh, these waves would just knock you over. They were so big. And, and one of them did just that to my brother Max. It, it knocked him over. And as it did, it sucked him in. And so there, there he is. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. Now, thankfully, my dad was very close. And just at the nick of time, he grabbed hold of my brother and saved him. He saved him from that wave that would have sucked him in and he would have been gone for good. It happens all the time. Now, what do you think my brother did? Just a, a young little boy. What do, you, what do you think he did when dad pulled him out of the water? What do you think he said? What was... What was his response to that? You think he said, check me out. Did you see how I rode that wave? That was pretty rad, huh? I'm, I'm something pretty great here. No. No, he didn't do that. What did he do? He wrapped his arms around my dad's neck and he said, thank you, daddy. I love you. Daddy, that's what grace does. If we really understand the grace of God, we're not going to be standing up saying, oh, look at me, look at all the impressive good things I've done. Look at how great and how cleaned up my act is. Check me out. If the grace of God has truly gripped us, it will humble us so that we give all the glory to God. That is why the truth of God's grace alone leads to the reality of all the glory going to God alone. Is that true of us? Have we been humbled by the grace of of God? Have we seen how desperately needy we are that if God had not drip, 
drawn us out of the ocean of our sin. We'd be dead. We'd be gone, drowned in our sin, utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. But he reached in and drew us out. Have we seen it? Have we been gripped by it? May God make it so. May God cause us to glory in his grace alone. That we would be a people who are truly humble and truly grateful before him. Let's pray.